the most basic desire that we have as human beings is to be effective. To be effective is to determine what we can do and create a systematic way to get there. And that's the essence of what I do with my clients, to create an effectiveness of a system. Because if you want to change, focus on the system, not just the goal. Winners and losers have the same goal. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-word. Welcome back to the most hated F-word podcast. I am so happy you're here for another wonderful conversation. For all the new listeners, welcome. I am glad you found us. For all the returning listeners, welcome back. And I'm equally as happy you're here for another fascinating conversation. This week, we're talking to David Kruger. He's an executive mentor coach, the CEO of Mentor Paths, which is an executive coaching, training, and publishing firm. David worked as a psychiatrist for over 30 years. He has written over 24 books. He's authored over 75 book chapters and many, many scientific papers on self-development, money, success, and wellness. David has been featured in many of the major news outlets such as the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Savvy, and the list goes on and on. In David's work, he focuses on integrating the mind, brain, performance science with strategic coaching practices to help people create strategies to help them achieve and sustain peak performance in their lives. You may recall that David joined the podcast last year where we talked about his book, Your New Money Story. In today's conversation, we focus on ideas centered around priming our mind and brain to help us create a mindset that cultivates confidence so that we can achieve prosperity or well-being. David shares with us proven positive framework-based initiatives that really help us cultivate this inner confidence. We talk about the idea of summit syndrome, meaning once you reach the summit, if all we are focusing on is achieving the summit, climbing the top of the mountain, how at times it's less satisfying as we once believed, with the message underlying is really focus on the process. During this conversation, you will see and hear how David is really talking to us on how we can apply what we know from behavioral economics and apply it to performance enhancement to our own money stories so that we can cultivate a happier and healthier relationship with money. I hope you enjoyed this fascinating conversation with David Kruger. David, welcome back to the show. I am pleased you are joining me for your second appearance on the podcast. Thanks, John. It's a privilege to be here. When we had a conversation on our first podcast, we really spoke about in around your book, your new money story, which I still reference often. I really, really enjoy that book. Thank you. Your check is in the mail. <laughs> ah, yeah. I think this conversation is extremely important because while we can get many books, not just your book, any book, we can have many podcasts like my podcast, we have many news articles, we're exposed to so much information. The availability of information is endless nowadays. And I was reflecting before we started recording myself as someone in an advice giving industry that often we feel as say advisors that if we just provide the information, people should change. Let's start with the work you've been doing for, I don't know how long, a long time on why is giving 
information not enough? Well, it's such an important question because we assume if somebody knows things the way that we do, they'll decide what we decide or just giving it up data and information that they will come to a decision that will fit with what we see and believe. But just the opposite actually is the case because to think about it from a mind and brain and performance science perspective, whenever someone has a belief, a fact, or information, that's an anatomical reality in their brain. So if we tell somebody something that we simply want to convey, that's fact or information, they're going to compare what they already know or believe with what we say. If they agree with it, they're going to find a way to confirm it, confirmation bias. If they disagree with it, they will find a way to refute it. So they're in their position even more entrenched than before because they've actively engaged it. It's called the boomerang effect. So Giving information and data often has the opposite effect, especially if it wants to influence someone else's behavior, the opposite effect of what we experience. So what's the opposite of that? A collaborative model. This is one of the hardest things to help someone understand who has a lot of information from academics to Sports coaches, I work with pro coaches as well as mentor coaching with financial and other professionals. They have information simply conveying that to the person. That professional coach, for example, knows more than any player on the field or court and thinks that telling them should be exactly what's needed and they'll do it, but it doesn't work. So what is hardest for them is to recognize that instead of telling them what to do or telling them the facts, to simply begin with an engagement with a question so that they are participating in looking at something together in a new way. We commit to what we help co-create. So it's that collaborative framework, whether it's a financial professional or myself as a mentor coach, that is so important to do to create a way of moving forward together. So here's a simple example. For the listeners, if you draw a circle on a piece of paper, inside that circle, put a stick figure. Now, that stick figure is your client. The challenge is to get inside the circle. Outside the circle, they won't listen to you. So to get inside that circle, you have to resonate with their challenge, their questions, their issues, so that once inside the circle, you can go someplace new together. The best supervision, the most cogent and succinct I ever heard this put was many years ago when I was still practicing psychiatry and psychoanalysis before making the transition to mentor coaching, I offered what I thought was the really savvy at the time interpretation to an executive woman. And there was a pause. And she, you know, finally raised up one elbow and looked back at me in my analytic chair and said, no, Kruger, first you've got to be with me before I can go someplace new with you. That's the most succinct and elegant way I've ever heard it put. That's my point. We have to be with someone else before we can go someplace new with them. Sometimes it's simply an empathic resonance to let them know, you know, I hear how overwhelming that is, or let's look at the challenge that you just talked about instead of looking at it in a problem or as overwhelming anxiety to collectively begin here and go the next step. As you're talking, I'm circling and writing down and circling so many words. I want to read just a couple of them. And there's a theme to every word. Collaborative model, you said. Engagement, moving forward together, somewhere new together. And then the final one, you said, be with me before we can go somewhere. It really sounds like there's this, to use your word, collaboration, doing with, not just doing for. How does one, say in the financial realm, because that's the the focus of this podcast, How do we get to be invited or 
allowed into that inner circle because I, I really be- I believe in everything you're saying. Yet, I think that many people might have a challenge on how do we actually be with me? How do we get into that circle? That's a, a great question. And let me give you an example of information going to a consultant versus a collaborative model. Most professionals have a consultancy mode. What's a simple example? You go to a doc, you have a problem, you're concerned about something that may be scared. You have an exchange, ask some questions, and then the doc gives you a recommendation. Let's say that's in the form of a prescription. The doc tells you what to do. Now, how does that work? Slightly less than 50% of prescriptions are actually filled. Of those that are filled, slightly less than 50% are taken as directed. So when someone is told what to do, less than one in four, even when they're scared and concerned about their health, actually follow through. What's the opposite of that? The antithesis is an engagement to look at what the individual wants. With my clients in mentor coaching, it's what would you like us to focus on in this session? Where would you like us to get to? They create a map for financial professionals. It's to begin with the needs and the goals of the client to look at what their challenges and issues are and to co-create a plan together rather than just telling them what to do. So that's the model of getting inside the circle of that collaborative basis of having the client's story inform how they proceed together to get someplace new. Yeah, you bring up story. And at the opening of this podcast, I talked about your book, Your New Money Story. You've been kind to provide the listeners with a a document, a white paper. And in that white paper, you do talk about the element of stories. and, And you talk about how we respond more to stories. What's happening from a, like a brain chemistry perspective when we talk about stories versus facts? And I ask this because, as you just mentioned, stories help us get into that circle. And if that's where the, the real work gets done inside that circle, I think it's beneficial for all of us to really understand, because we hear about stories, how influential and how impactful they are. But what was really happening to us when we hear a story rather than facts and figures? Well, our brains are hardwired for story. If you think about the basic elements of the story, there are three elements to every good story, whether that's a blog, a book, or a conversation with a client. It's the challenge, the development, and the resolution. The challenge is how you get into that circle to resonate with what the client's experience is, what their needs and desires are, where they want to get to, and then The whole middle is the collaboration to get to a conclusion. So the very beginning is a way of engaging someone because when we hear the beginning of a story, we have a model and a framework. Stephen King put it very simply. He said, after all, All an author ever has to do is to keep the reader asking what happens next, because that's what triggers dopamine, the pleasure chemical, because we want to know what happens next. How we engage with someone is to get them to co-create that story with us. So for the financial professional listening or for the mentor coach or for a parent of an adolescent, engage with where the person is with what they want and need and think about and then collaboratively help them to where they want to be. So it's about helping them, the other person, develop their story for their point of reference. Think about how this is so different than telling someone what to do. If you have any doubt, tell your adolescent what to do. First of all, they already know. They've known for several years now exactly what your opinion is. Will it work? Not likely. So the antithesis of that is to 
collaborate to ask them what they think about something and to proceed together to co-create something that's different than either would have done alone because that activates a part of our brains that we want to be effective. The most basic desire that we have as human beings is to be effective. To be effective is to determine what we can do and create a systematic way to get there. And and that's the essence of what I do with my clients. That's the essence of the model that I just suggested is to create an effectiveness of a system. Because if you want to change, focus on the system, not just the goal. Winners and losers have the same goal, but the system is a small to a larger map and maybe several maps of where you are, where you're going, how to measure progress along the way, and then how to tell what's detour and what's a distraction. And that can be a simple conversation. What would you like us to focus on? What would you like us to get to? And then to proceed and then ultimately have that person summarize what the important thing is they're taking away and what they want to do about it. So that's a map. And their summary means that they're bringing a closure and a synthesis to that story. Here's a simple example of not us summarizing it for them, but they created a brief summary of what they're taking away. What that does is to create a closure and a memory of that story. Here's a simple example of how that plays out. University of Waterloo did a study of two large matched groups of people who read the same passage in a book, half read it out loud, half read it silently. They then took the same test. The ones who read it out loud did 40% better on the test. They put it in an output channel. They made it a complete story, which made it a memory, which made it accessible. Speaking of mind and brain and performance sciences, here's something else that we know about effective conversations. We've seen in neuroscience very recently that we attend to and remember up to 10 words at a time. After that, our attention and retention begins to tail off a bit. So it's useful to put questions or conversations in clear, brief, simple ways. And this is from the Bible of writing, William Zinser, that good writing and good speaking, clarity, brevity, simplicity, humanity. Now we know in neuroscience that we attend to and remember only 10 or 12 words at a time. A buddy of mine, Loyola Merriman, Mark Waldman, did some studies of people who were in emotionally charged situations like divorce, mediation, situations that usually can drag on and on. When the participants agreed to fit into his framework, he asked them each to speak only the 10 words and then stop. And he asked them to count them by putting both fists up, extending one digit for each word, and then stopping. And then the other side took a turn. When they did this, they resolved the issues in 20 to 30% of the usual time and in a significantly more satisfactory way because it was clear, brief, and simple. And that's what we're wired to do. Think about how when somebody goes on and on, speaks in paragraphs, after a few words or at least a few sentences, you begin to plan what you're going to have for dinner that night and and do like I'm saying, not like I'm doing because my usual sentence averages 274 words. But this is something that's, that's a principle in terms of professional conversations. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think when you say do as I'm saying, not, not as I'm doing, you're, you're teaching, though, and I think that's important. But it's so interesting how you bring up that clear, brief, and simple. Just the, the studies that you, you discussed really show that our brain's capacity to, to remember the 10 or less words. It makes me think about 
say it's a financial planning meeting where someone might go and see a planner and have a, an hour and a half conversation. And the planner talked about every piece of the financial planning spectrum. And we're, we're expecting these clients to retain that. And I think perhaps that's the part that makes people hesitant to go in, and see a planner where this collaborative approach, going back to your coaching model, it seems to really draw on this idea of also cultivating or, or discovering maybe together the level of passion that someone has for whatever that goal is that you talked about. Can you speak to the, the role that passion has in our motivation? In the reference of, we set a goal in this collaborative process, but like you said, it's the systems that really help us. But what role, if any, does passion play in creating that motivation? Well, to create passion, it needs to be a collaborative framework as a fundamental beginning because there's no passion in receiving information, basically. Getting information, data, facts, again, it does the opposite. We begin to compare what we hear to what we already believe. If it fits, we go with it and believe it even more. So, you know, passion is part of a fundamental activation of interest, of focus, and co-creation. So to, to be passionate about something, it needs to fit with our, our needs and our ideals. So a simple example of this is as someone fits as a financial planner or as an intercoach to know something about the needs and ideals of the client can help in creating strategies and goal, co-creating those strategies and goals. Because if they don't fit, then there's not the all-in, the dynamite motivation to, to proceed. So that makes it important to have a co-creation and a participation of the person that their needs and ideals fit into the strategies and goals so that all of them is going in the same direction. And there's a system because it's not just about an ultimate goal. That's an abstraction. That's a future event that there's no passion attached to. Or there may be a kind of motivation, but as I say, everyone has similar goals. So what really generates success is a collaborative framework of a system. So someone is overwhelmed or looks at a whole number of things. To create a system is to create a map. And there can be a small map, such as for this conversation that I mentioned moments ago, the focus, the destination, at least in, in the, the professional's mind. And then how do you move toward that in a collaborative way? It may be understanding in a, in a larger system, the money story with a client, what their money story is to look at how you can together understand what they're doing is working or not, and then how to go about changing that. The, the challenge here, 90 to 95% of our operating system is unconscious. Things that we do automatically without thinking about. So that means that in understanding this system of how to really read and understand the algorithms that construct a story and how to address and revise ones that aren't working can be really, really important. And as a former card-carrying psychoanalyst, I can tell you this, you never have to go into the past or the history or the dynamics. As a mentor coach, <laughs> I'll say, everything that's important is going to manifest in the conversation here and now with the client. Everything that determines behavior is going to reveal itself. Someone is always showing you what it's like to be them. So we're listening, among other things, for beliefs, assumptions that work, ones that don't work, 
biases, blind spots, unconscious aspects that can scuttle or short circuit issues so that we can address it in a positive way, not in a problem way. Now, here's the principle of that. And this is from appreciative inquiry. It's a whole field of study that I've done some where you see some of the the aspects of the behavioral economics principles. A handful of those come from adaptations of appreciative inquiry. Dr. David Copperwriter did studies in organizations to go in and do a consultancy. And for half of the organizations, he asked the usual consultant problems and approach. What, what are the problems and how can we address and solve those? For the other half, he, instead of looking at problems, looked at possibilities. What are the challenges? What are the possibilities here? And that resulted in significantly more engagement and better resolutions. So this is simply a matter of how we frame something. If we frame something as an individual, as something that's new or different, which always is going to register as a little bit of discomfort because we're departing from that default mode. If something is a little bit new or different, we register it with a little bit of discomfort or something that we want to read as this is our register of something new and different rather than my intuition is telling me this is all from a gut saying it's wrong. So if it's new and different, it's going to create a little bit of discomfort, a little bit of trepidation. Now, if we register that, our brains can't tell the difference between anxiety and excitement. So something's new and different. It's going to activate our brains. We register it as excitement. We look at challenge and opportunity and we engage it in a positive, adapted way. If we register it as anxiety, we boot up a whole mindset that has to do with protection Caution, better head for cover. So immediately, with the same activation, our brains register exactly the same way. The mindset that we attach determines whether we proceed in a positive, adaptive way or retreat into the default mode of how we've dealt with anxiety before. So that immediate register is important to look at and to determine how we're going to frame it because the framework boots up the entire mindset of how to deal with it. A simple example, one of my favorite social scientists, the title of his last book says this, illustrates it. Don't think of an elephant. How can you not think of not? So that framework determines everything that follows. So that's what's important to recognize in terms of our collaborative model and how we frame things going forward. So someone who I'm coaching begins with, well, the problem here, I've begun in the first session to ask them if I believe that it would be helpful to look at something in the moment they mention it, may I have permission to interrupt you? And I give them permission to interrupt me too. So I'll interrupt and say, what's the possibility here? They've got the problem down. We're all addicted to problems. You think about, you know, the last time you and your buddy sat on the patio and had a glass of Chardonnay, within about a minute or two, you were animated talking about problems or things, you know, narrow escape, <laughs> the kind of things that we all talk about. The challenge is to frame it as what's the opportunity and to think in a new and different way, which is not always comfortable because we depart immediately from our default mode and we don't know exactly where we're going. So we want to recreate something and repetition can read as effectiveness because we know the outcome. So that's the challenge of these conversations. You know, I could definitely hear the coaching lens through your response there, which I really, I really do appreciate. And um, bringing in appreciative, appreciative inquiry, I think, is valuable, especially as you've talked about the coach and building on those strengths or assets. 
where my thoughts are going is around the framing. So you, you talked about the positive adaptive. And I'm super interested in your prior work as a psychoanalysis, where you said that you don't need to go into the past. But you said something that I want to focus on, because I want to get some clarity for myself. You said when you're having these collaborative conversations, whatever needs to will reveal itself. Where my mind is going, I think it was Carl Jung who said, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will continue to rule you and you'll call it fate. So I guess, am I hearing this correctly? Like if, if we don't necessarily need to dive into the past, uncover where those origin stories started that are influencing our thoughts and feelings and beliefs around money, instead it's around the positive adaptive framing moving forward. So are you saying that we don't need to always dig into the past? And if something from the past is necessary to work through, it will reveal itself as we frame our, our lens forward? Yes. To all of that, a simple yes. Going back into the past, understanding better, looking at the dynamics, the origins, doesn't create a new story. To create a new story begins in the present moment with the choice architecture of now and next. Everything that may be limiting is going to reveal this. All the algorithms, positive, negative, indifferent, are going to reveal themselves in my client's story. If someone has, for example, a limiting belief, well, you know, I, I just need to get confident in order to really do this. I need to get comfortable or I need to get motivated to work out every day. These are all limiting assumptions. I work with pro athletes and actors as well as executives. They are not motivated to go to the gym every day in off season or, or the others six days a week, but they do it because they know that that's what they need to do in order to do what's next. You don't need motivation. You only need a plan and to stick to it. So, so that's my first question. If someone says, well, I'm, I'm just not doing it. Do you have a plan? And then are you loyal to that plan or do you find some way to stop yourself and bargain internally and say, well, I'll do it next Tuesday? Or do you have a plan or are you sticking to it? Those are the only two. You don't need motivation. You don't need confidence or comfortable. Those are all places you get to, but it's not a prerequisite. It can't be, actually. So you proceed with a systematic plan and you'll get there, but you can't use that as prerequisites. It's kind of like getting on the edge of the water to jump in to swim for the first time. You can't learn to swim on paper and stepping back will avoid the anxiety. I had a, <laughs> a friend in growing up whose mother wouldn't let him into the swimming pool until he knew how to swim. And to this day, he does not know how to swim. That assumption didn't work any more than these that I'm mentioning work. So sometimes we just have to focus on the system. And that way we can really hear the algorithms that determine behavior in order to see which ones work and which ones don't. The ones that work, we do more of. The ones that work, that don't work, we may do something different. I want to ask a, like a practical example here. This is my own curiosity firing up now because you're the one with the decades of experience in this. And I, I remember last time this coming up and my curiosity was piqued. So for example, I, I really believe in systems and how if we create the system, then you know we might have more success in accomplishing whatever we want to accomplish. What happens though, if the system we designed was from a maybe a maladaptive belief based on something that we thought to be true in the past. And let's use money as an example, and I'll, I'll turn it back to you. Let's say that there's someone who is very, or they, they think that they want to become very successful in business, and they're spending a lot of time trying to be successful in business. And I guess their output of success is, is company valuation or money in the bank. Is there danger in that, not danger, but is there a risk in that person not really looking at the past to see that, oh, wait, I'm actually just really driven by money and to find like success that maybe when I was a child growing up, I didn't really have that attachment or 
I, I wasn't seen as much. And now this pursuit of money really makes me feel seen and important. So while this person might become very successful from the company perspective, what happens if the system they designed was based on a faulty or maladaptive belief? That's a great question. In the, in the example that you gave, the current goals and beliefs are based on software that was designed at an earlier time. And we don't know yet if it's really outdated or limiting or not. And that's a reason to look at the goals and the entire system of successful application, but also internally. This is exactly how I got interested in the whole issue of money is way back when I had just done a first book on money as a psychoanalyst, I began to see people who had achieved remarkable success and they had re reached their goal. The first guy I saw, he, he had decided initially that when he made $5 million, he would be happy. And he had made $5 million, he'd funded his retirement, he'd had a, you know, a second, and he realized, and he upped the ante, upping the ante didn't work, so he said, maybe I need to go see a shrink. So he began to look at how his anticipated reaching a goal did not really result in what he had hoped. This is my current work and research now is looking at people who achieve remarkable success and don't have a mind. So this goes beyond your question to current experience. Does that fit with a past model? What if you go forward and there's no model? for what happens in the future. I'm looking at a whole way of applying the mind and brain and performance sciences to look at remarkable success, people who achieve remarkable success beyond what they had ever imagined. And they don't have a model necessarily for the accompaniments of that success, fame, wealth, power, influence, and they often get caught up in how to deal with this. A very, a very simple example is my wife and I are watching the morning show, the, the series, and the male co-host got caught up in 15 years of remarkable success and wealth into a kind of hubris where he thought he was untouchable. So that created its own problems, and I'm not far into it, and don't tell me how it turned out, but I'm seeing that as an illustration of that. And a very simple example, the Keith Richards said, you know, fame has killed a lot more guys than drugs and alcohol. So dealing with success is its own issue, and especially if there's not a system, and right now there's not a systematic approach in mentor coaching or in psychology to deal with this or to deal with it effectively. And that's what I'm seeing in clients and in the research and interviews I'm doing as well. So more to be said on this for a future podcast, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. And I got a question about this and I'm going to give a caveat that I apologize if this is sensitive for some people or too soon. But what you're saying makes me think of, and I don't have all the stories, so I'm treading, I, I'm actually delaying what I'm going to say, but I'm, by talking, I'm just going to say it. The gentleman that went down in the submarine for the Titan, some, the submarine that we know did not go so well, he was a bi billionaire. I, I, I saw a, a news reporter's perspective, kind of lumping him in with this idea that billionaires think that they're indestructible and how there is potentially some red flags on the submarine before it, it went down. Is that in a realm of what you're talking about where you said earlier that people think that they're, it wasn't invincible, but used a similar word to invincible, where at a certain level, when we get this amount of success, if we don't have a framework, as you called it, to deal with the success, is this overconfidence bias coming into play? Because we have this thing that we thought was going to bring us tons of success, money, but yet, yeah, we don't have a framework, so we make 
maybe decisions we wouldn't have made earlier in our lives? I don't know the answer to that question because I don't know the situation enough. Yeah, to come. I, I, it was a and little I, too specific, but well, I'm I'm referring also to someone who who's achieved remarkable success where the fundamentals and the system that brought that success are no longer applicable. You know, a, a simple example would be the pro athlete who mm-hmm. comes from, you know, all the way from poverty to even middle class. Suddenly, though, even though accustomed to applause and acclaim, suddenly goes from zero to 60 million in a 10-second signature, that's a different model that's going to be required now to deal with money and all the possibilities that are also accompanying that success. And unless there's a model, there can be some some difficulties. Mm-hmm. And you, you've done some work around this idea of success anticlimax. And while I don't think it's the exact same, what, can you explain what success anticlimax is? After spending decades in training almost on a daily basis, Bruce Jenner, on the morning after his last decathlon, woke up and said, now what I'm going to do? He was so accustomed to having a system of engagement, of accelerating accomplishment. And even though long-term, that still engages the pleasure neurochemical system. The What happens next is always the next practice, the next competition, and the positive engagement that's a whole neurochemical system primarily mediated by dopamine. Now, when someone accomplishes something, then that's another system entirely. Suddenly, the norepinephrine system the marathon system is booted into play instead of the sprint system. And that's going to read as different. A simple example is something that someone has long anticipated and decided finally to purchase, has been excited all this time. They're going to get a BMW. They waited off. Suddenly they get a BMW. And there's kind of buyer's remorse. It's not, not as exciting as they thought it would be. And it's like buyers are like, did I make the wrong decision here? No, it's simply a different system. The anticipation has finally arrived and it's different. And here's what we know, a really simple, simply goofy example, but a simple example. You hook somebody up to an fMRI before they actually touch the slot machine. They approach it. Before they touch it, they get a hit of dopamine. So it's pleasurable. We usually and originally thought that the dopamine is the play, the reward. No, it's the anticipation. Same with shoppers. They buy something just before they buy it. It's the anticipation. And they want to replicate that so they're more vulnerable to buy more things. And for people who are really vulnerable, they can get a shopping or a spending addiction because they want to sustain that feeling. So It's just simply a different experience and one that may need to be planned for. It's something that planning and a systematic approach beyond what's anticipated can be useful. An application of that is I work with executives and professionals who are maybe within a year of retirement to anticipate a wholesale change in their lives. The accomplishment, the excitement of contribution, that's going to suddenly end. They, they know somehow playing golf every day will last about two months. So they need to plan for what their next transition, the whole process of change and transition, as well as maybe what their next contribution would be. This is the excitement of looking ahead for something. It may be totally different, but it's the next contribution. It's not an end, but a transition to a new beginning that involves an ending first, but then a transition and planning for something that can generate 
productivity, contribution, and excitement that will not be just a sudden departure from everything they know. You're really making me think about this idea that if we retire in this example, if we're leaving a story and we don't have a new story or a new identity to step into, that's where, I guess, where we can become unhappy or reach this success anticlimax. And it, it sounds to me, it's really around this planning that helps us transition. Like you said, I like that transition to a new beginning. What role does the coach play in helping orientate them to the new direction versus just being a, a set of ears to listen and reflect back good questions? Well, I think it's an active collaborative planning because it's, it's not just asking the right questions because that assumes somebody has all the answers and it's a scratch and sniff. I think it's an active co-creation, but always with the client's story as point of reference. One of my colleagues put it very simply, if someone doesn't know what an amoy is, you can't coach it out of them. Yeah. So it's a, it's a matter of assessing and planning. Here's a simple example that will get up to the point of doing something new and different. Angela Duckworth, one of my favorite authors who wrote, among other things, Grit, she recognized that she had been doing the same thing to improve her running for three decades, and she had not gotten any better despite dedicated success. So she went to a mentor coach and this was at the time the PhD who initiated the whole aspect of performance science and peak performance in the early and mid 1995, Anders Ericsson. He asked her some basic questions. He asked first, when you work out, do you have a specific goal for your training? Before you go for a run, do you have a target in terms of the pace you'd like to keep? Do you have a distance goal for each run? Is there a specific aspect of your running that you focus on improving each time? And he said, do you have a mentor coach? Her answer to every one of these five questions was no. He said, well, I think I understand. You're not improving because you're not practicing right. So... Part of the answer to your question is you practice for something you've never experienced, but you can still practice for it, create a system and look at what you want to keep, what you want to let go and what you want to engage in a new and different way. So that's part of the whole transition process. That's why it often takes a collaboration, getting information from outside. So to look at what's worked and what's not and to look at someone's operating system to see what works and what doesn't. And that's not always obvious. Mm -hmm. And I think that goes to your point earlier about getting invited into that circle so that you can have those co-collaboration conversations. So we've been talking some challenges that come with success, but are there any other challenges that you can think about that you've seen when dealing with success? And, and especially when we think about it, when we consider wealth, power, and influence? Well, one thing as a kind of beginning discussion of that is to look at a mindset that you go into any endeavor or any engagement. To have and to keep a growth mindset means that there may be things that you haven't anticipated, but you have developed this ability to self-reflect and to be aware of yourself and to stay grounded and centered. I think I mentioned in our last discussion and podcast a couple of studies from Harvard Business Review and Scientific American Mind that showed that the primary quality of successful executives, far more than business school, level of experience, companies that work for, was the ability to self-reflect and to self-regulate emotions. Now, and that was because they only looked at executives. I think that's true for everyone. So 
Here's a, a simple example of how mindset can determine what follows. I, I mentioned earlier about a problem versus possibility. Here's a, a way that a mindset can affect performance in a, in a way that's measurable. And I, and I picked this because I, I love studies that are so simple <laughs> that illustrate a point and make it so tangible. So this is an effect on performance and investing with an illustration from soccer. Two different mindsets, playing to win versus playing not to lose. A soccer penalty kick, 12 yards away, 72-foot target guarded by one goal. When someone's playing to win, when that's the framework, when making the goal will result in a win, the kick is successful 92% of the time. When the context is playing not to lose, you have to make the goal. The team is down by one. You make it to tie or you lose. The success rate is 62%. Same distance, same target, two different mindsets, 30% difference in success rate. So the mindset of a growth mindset looking at possibilities and evolving in a new way, step by step, like the Angela Duckworth example that I gave, is fundamental to engaging any new and even unpredicted endeavors to do that in a collaborative way, to get advice, to get feedback, and to make considered and systematic decisions. That's very interesting. 30%, that's a substantial differential between the two. Yes. Are there times, and what's making me think about this is, I had this written down about the, when we earlier were talking about our, our positive adaptive frames, like how we frame the situation. Are there times when we can... Say we're, we're trying to play to win because this research is, is, is just really fascinating. And, and I mean, her, Angela's book really speaks to that. But are there times where we can create this positive adaptive framework, but we aren't actually meaning it? And, and where this question is leaning from is this idea of toxic positivity, so to speak, where sometimes we try to believe ourselves to do something, but underneath there's still this belief that isn't fully in alignment. How do we differentiate between the two of creating this like this positive adaptive mindset versus almost like faking it to ourselves? Great question. And in a way, you're describing a, a surface story and a shadow story. The surface story may be what you said, what we want to do, or I want to generate more income and create wealth. But, but if the shadow story, and remember that 90 to 95% of our operating system is unconscious, but if that shadow story contains certain beliefs that go in the opposite direction, such as, well, you know, I, I, I don't really think I have what it takes to make significant money, or what if I get to the top and then get lonely, or I have, you know, failure and then I'll really be exposed, or, you know, I'm just not meant to have significant money. If there's any shadow story that goes in the opposite direction, there can be a stuckness so that the remedy is for all of someone to go in the same direction, to be aware fully of constructing that story in the present moment in a full way to recognize that whatever you think and feel and experience, you create each moment. That it's not there until you create it. And it basically, you say that in a different way. Whatever you experience, you either create or you accept. So the assessment may require someone who's expert, such as a financial consultant, or it may require a mentor coach if there are things that get in the way in terms of that internal construction. So the, the question then moves to how do you best assess your performance? Now, do you have a game plan and did you stick to it? What, if anything, caused you to deviate if you did? How well were you able to make necessary adjustments to 
keep that game plan current and moving forward, even given new situations. And this is where the remarkable success and the adaptation to it, whether sudden or gradual, is important. Was your preparation sufficient? And how do you assess your progress in every aspect of your performance? And a crucial question, what will you do to improve your performance next time? So this is a constant looking at improvement, which can be exciting because it always is looking at what's next and how to do better. So there's no, there's no success anticlimax in this model of growth mindset. There's no summit syndrome where you get to the top of the mountain and you need to do a different system to stay on top of the mountain or still want to ascend another peak that is even further. It's a constant assessment using a growth mindset and a collaborative model of experts and mentor coaches or others who you simply collaborate with and play it out loud and see how it sounds. Earlier, you said all of someone go in the direction when you were answering my question about the surface and shadow parts of us. It really spoke to me just that you're right in the sense of these co-collaborations when we, I guess it gives us that opportunity, as you just said, to play it out loud so that we can all, all of us, our whole selves go in that direction. And I guess what I'm hearing you say is when we co-create together with a mentor coach or whomever, when you ask these questions, like what caused you to deviate? I feel like I'm hearing you say that that's when things from the past that need to be addressed, that's when they're going to get revealed. Is that correct to my, my thoughts there? We're not necessarily saying, oh, tell me all about your past childhood. But in these collaborative conversations, what needs to be revealed will be revealed when we reflect and speak out loud. Yes. As you're looking, say, collaboratively at an assessment of what's working and what a systematic plan is, beginning with the next step and beyond to an ultimate goal, even now to look at what's working, what needs to be done to continue and sustain that. A simple example, uh, Pablo Casals, the legendary chalice, was asked why he continued to practice at age 90. He said, because I think I'm making progress. So what you're describing is a systematic way for a faster recovery from success and climax to latter success to attain anticipation of the next increment, whatever it is, instead of a summit syndrome, which is, you know, well, I've arrived, what do I do now? So even when it's a long anticipated goal, it still can be, what can I do to continue to be excited, to contribute, and to achieve in ways that benefit me and others that align with my needs and my ideals? And those ideals may undergo evolution when you reach at or more than you ever anticipate. So this is the ongoing significant assessment to look at not idealizing achievement, but at looking at the satisfaction of meeting needs and ideals and evolving to always update software to look at now and next in ways that fit what you want and what your ideals are. You know, it really makes me think of a coach that I once had who had always said that success is a mountain without a top, but we're always striving, but never really arriving. This idea that re-engaging ourselves and setting new goals and yeah, to avoid those success climates, anti-climates. Such interesting things, and I appreciate your insight to just the mind and how it works as we as we navigate these wild things called our life's journeys and stories. You've done some good writing on behavioral economics. How can, if at all, behavioral economic principles be applied to this conversation that we're having around success and performance as we continue to co-create these new stories that we all aspire to have in the future? Well, that's a great question, and 
the the answer to that, my best answer to that question is the white paper that you have available for the listeners about applying in a practical way, I think, behavioral economics principles to financial performance enhancement. Because as you've sort of alluded to, behavioral economics is really the study of how we make decisions versus how we use information, logic, and intellect. And it's about the reality of applying the mind and brain sciences to actual decisions. And some of that awareness can be helpful in avoiding pitfalls as well as making better decisions. So there are 15 of the principles and the applications that I've extracted to put in that white paper in a, in a summary way that hopefully will be beneficial. And if there are any questions that any of your listeners say, have them fire me an email and I'll be happy to respond. Or on my website, there's a, a, a link on the homepage to have a, a brief discussion with me to sign up if there are any questions that, that they have about anything that didn't get answered in the uh, in this podcast. Yeah, thank you. And as you said, that white paper, I really like the, I say simple, where writing it would not be simple, but the simple language is very effective for many people as they read it so that the the information can be digested. I'm looking at this document and I see loss aversion. And it's making me think of that plane to win versus plane to lose. My mind, I just want to correct my mind here. The 30% more success were people who are playing to win. Is that right? Yes. And that mindset in the in the soccer yeah. example, 30% difference, same kick, just different mindset. Right. And so they're playing to win versus playing not to lose. And it's interesting that it, it would, maybe I'm I'm stretching here, but one would could see that playing not to lose could be a form of avoiding loss aversion. But yet the, the research did show that that plane to win certainly had the higher success rate. Yeah, and this is one of the studies that began the whole field of behavioral economics not that long ago. And Dr. Daniel Kahneman did a study in which he measured actually as brain activation what the result of a win and a loss was and showed that it actually registered as twice as much pain when somebody lost $100 as the amount of pleasure registered if they gained $100. So with $100 one way or the other, it registers in a really different way. And loss aversion can become powerful as a motivator in terms of decision. So this is useful to know. Yeah, very, very interesting. As we come to an end here, based on what we've been talking about, is there areas that you feel you'd like to wrap up or some final words or comments that you'd like to leave the listeners just on this idea of, I really like how it's centered around cultivating this this growth mindset so that we can, I guess, really to continue to enjoy this journey with every incremental level of success. And I know a few times we talked about high levels of success, but I feel like this could be applied to all of our journeys because, I mean, our own successes are all the successes we experience. So are there any parting final words that you have in terms of the conversation that we've had? Well, I think the, the discussion that we've had is to sort of highlight the self-reflection and self-awareness to begin to ask or to continue to ask questions rather than to have a fixed mindset to continue in a growth mindset way. We each have the conviction that we see things as they are, that our beliefs and responses are determined by objective perceptions, and that just given the right information, other rational and reasonable people would reach the same conclusions we have. You know, George Carlin said this pretty simply. Have you ever noticed anybody driving slower than you is an idiot and anybody driving faster is a maniac? 
<laughs> so, and we've talked about a short list of some of the anatomical realities in your brain. Facts, beliefs, identity patterns, like attachment, emotional behavior, the default modes that we use. So I think to continue to examine, to continue with self-reflection, and to keep in mind the use of a comma instead of a period. Well, that's the way things are, a comma. But is there anything else or anything better or what else? What can I also consider? Thank you. And that growth mindset to me just keeps popping up as a, a nice theme and curiosity to put that comma instead of the period. David, we will include your white paper that you generously provided. And I did look, your email is on there and your website. So we'll include your email and website. Is there any other areas online that you would like to point people towards? I have a, a training that is specifically for financial professionals and financial coaches called New Money Story Mentor. It's coaching system that's licensed and specially certified that involves the mind and brain sciences with strategic coaching to guide like behavioral change, rewrite mind software and brain hardware to systematically guide success. And this is for, as I said, financial professionals and coaches. And there's an entire curriculum and training seminars that is all online and self-paced and results in a licensed specialty certification. And that, that's something that's possible. But I really want to end with, I, I think, Sean, I ended the previous podcast with this, but I'm dedicating my next book to my favorite grandmother for this saying. She said, if you're not having fun, you're not doing it right. So mm -hmm. just keep that in mind. Yeah. Words of wisdom, though, really, really is. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I, I appreciate you taking the time to come speak with me and my audience. Thanks very much. It's been a privilege. I appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in this week. If you're still listening, perhaps you found this episode insightful. If that's the case, I would love if you could support the show. You can do it in two ways. Number one, you can head over to your podcast player of choice and hit the subscribe button so you're notified when new episodes come out. Second, if you have a little bit extra time, if you could head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review, that would be great. Until next week, have yourself a good one. I'm on a mountain without a top. My wealth is measured and now I spend my time. But now I read freedom story with every breath inhaled. Money is not the boat of life. It's just the wind in the sea.